go, let's go, come on. Job done. Don't sweat, lads. Three police officers murdered in cold blood. The hijack required a police insider. There's something intriguing about how we police the police, especially when things go wrong. We take them at their word. Till now. There's no secrets in AC-12. Wherever it takes, I'm in. The topic has inspired plenty of TV shows, and if you're a fan of the BBC's Line of Duty police thriller, you'll recognise these famous phrases. That's why I'm asking the organ grinder and not a monkey. And we will be left holding a sprat when we should have landed a mackerel. Well, she's cooked her goose now. The name's Hastings, ma'am. I'm the epitome of an old battle. My actions and the actions of my officers are determined by one thing and one thing only, and that is the letter of the law. But it makes you think, what do we know about our own police? And who does police the police? I'm Sharon Brett Kelly, and today on The Detail, I talked to Guy on Espiner about his work on this for RNZ's in-depth series, Licence to Kill, and what the team discovered after wading through 10,000 pages of documents and crunching hours of data. I first started to get really interested in this subject after I investigated and reported on the shooting of Shagan Stevens. Shagan Stevens was shot and killed in 2016 after smashing up an empty police car with a weed slasher. And the IPCA process and the police homicide investigation into that shooting of a 35-year-old Māori man in Rotorua. I did an initial story and then the IPCA, a couple of weeks ago, overturned their um, findings on that case. The IPCA says it will now take an in-depth review of the 2016 case after RNZ revealed significant discrepancies in the official story of the police shooting. So in the course of this, I got really interested in a number of things. What police are confronted with in these kinds of situations when they are involved in fatal shootings? And then what happens afterwards? Who investigates? How do they investigate? How does this process work and is it independent? And we're in a really interesting position in New Zealand because our police watchdog, the Independent Police Conduct Authority, or IPCA, doesn't have any prosecutorial powers at all, unlike many similar bodies um, in countries that we compare ourselves with. So it's left to the police to investigate their own. And so I was fascinated in how that happens. And with our in-depth team, we decided, hey, let's have a really big, good look at this. And so we decided to do that. And for our Hancock, um, looked and crunched a lot of the data. We both did a lot of research in OIAs. And I was lucky enough to get hold of thousands of pages. I mean, I estimate about 10,000. It might have been a bit more than that um, of documents, a lot of which were police files where they lay out in detective notes and interviews and things how they conduct these homicide inquiries. And so I guess that's where it all all really began. And so for this podcast, I do want to focus on the IPCA because I think a lot of us, even journalists, you know, we get a lot of statements. And in fact, only last week, 
There were two pretty big stories about the IPCA. One was a decision that the IPCA had made that was about the shooting of Joel Buckley. The police watchdog says officers who shot and killed a man who fired at them with a military-style rifle were justified in doing so. Joel Buckley was shot dead in Hamilton last July. But the other one is about how the, there were 1,900 complaints made to the IPCA about the protests in Wellington. The Independent Police Conduct Authority has received nearly 1,900 complaints about the police's handling of the occupation of Parliament's grounds and the streets around the precinct. But it just made me think that over the years, you know, as a news journalist, I've seen a lot of these kind of statements, and I don't really know what it is. No, and I was in exactly the same position, in fact, when we started this. And as you'd know, I mean, one of the tools that you use as a journalist is the Official Information Act. And and so you start and you think, okay, well, what can I find out? What are the reports um, that we could get? What are the communications that we can get hold of? You've got a big problem with the IPCA because it's not subject to the Official Information Act which I was staggered at. Why is that, Guyon? Well, you see, this is very, very interesting. It's a crown entity, right? Um, so it should be subject to the OIA, but it's not. It's one of the very few, in fact, probably the only one that, that I've come across that is not subject to the Official Information Act. Now, um, just Judge Doherty, Judge Colin Doherty, who's the chair, chair of the IPCA, and you have to be a judge to chair the IPCA, uh, he, he says, well, the secrecy provisions of the IPCA are so that police can come and tell them things that they wouldn't tell the police in these homicide investigations against them or in another investigation the police has against them. And that information that they've told the IPCA cannot be used against them, can't be used in a court case, it can't be used against them. So you've got one of those classic scenarios where, um, you know, I can tell you something secret, but you can't do anything with it. Mm. Um, so I think that's really interesting, especially when you look at the powers of the IPCA, which we can, we can talk about, but they are very limited. So, so that's step one, that um, you, you are not going to get official information at request responded to because they aren't subject to it. And you'll get those press statements about that shooting that you talked about or the fact that they're taking um, on those 1,900 complaints about the um, anti-mandate protests, but you won't get to see any of their workings. You won't get to see what anything was based on. Um, So all of that is opaque. You'll only get what they put out. So you, even in your own investigation and and the 10,000 documents that you waded through, did you get any clearer picture of the whole process of the IPCA investigations? Oh, absolutely. Um, But only by matching what the police did in their homicide investigations compared to what the IPCA said in their ones. And and that was where I started with that Shark and Stevens story because the police homicide investigation and the IPCA investigation um, showed uh, big discrepancies uh, between the two. But yeah, we, we know quite a bit about, um, about how the IPCA works now. They actually work very closely with the police. And, you know, there is a problem there, obviously, too, isn't there? How independent is it? So for a start, they only independently investigate 2 or 3% of all of those complaints. They get more than 4,000 a year. Only 2 or 3% are independently investigated. A lot of the cases are thrown back to the police to investigate themselves with IPCA oversight, 
if you like. They take a backseat sort of oversight role, but very much in the background. So the police are left to investigate their own uh, complaints. So we, we do know um, quite a bit about uh, how, how they operate, but you're not going to get it through official channels all the time. Who works there? I mean, we've got Judge Doherty at the top. Yes, we do. And we, we have a board of two or three and 40-odd staff all up. Now, a lot of these people are former uh, police investigators, but not all of them. You've got a budget of about $5 million a year. Now, just to rewind a little bit, we've only had an IPCA since 1988, and it only got its own independent investigators in 2003. And for a lot of its life, it's been a sole person. You know, it's been a judge with with almost no resources at all. Um, So it's been beefed up a little bit over the years, but they still have uh, very slim resources. I mean, Judge Doherty himself uh, acknowledges they do not have the resources to do, do the job. And that was before they got tasked with looking into 1900 complaints mm. about the Parliament protest. But um, if you look at it up against the police, which is 14,000 staff and $2.2 billion, mm. I mean, that, that is a minnow trying to monitor a giant. Absolutely. So can you give me an example? Can, can we maybe look at the Shagan Stevens case of the steps that the IPCA goes through as part of its investigation? Yeah, and I'll need to be a little careful here um, because the coroner has um, put a suppression order out on on some aspects of this case after our initial reporting, and we, we can certainly say this, and RNZ is challenging that in, in the court. But the, the chief things that the IPCA had to revisit in that case, were the impact of the bail checks that were made on on Shagan Stevens. An RNZ investigation shows the IPCA was not told the full story about police actions. For more than a month before Stevens lashed out and was shot, police made constant late-night bail checks on Stevens. Uh, the police bail checked him about 70 times in 30-odd days in the lead-up to the shooting. Arriving as late as 2 and 3 a.m., and the IPCA initially said that the bail checks were, were reasonable and didn't contribute to him lashing out uh, that day. He smashed up a police car and he was shot after that. And so they, they had to, to, to revisit that. But what, what we found is that the police in the homicide investigation told, told quite a different story than what they actually told the IPCA. So we were able to find contradictions in that, which frankly led them to overturn that finding. So they go about questioning the police involved and do they also question other parties? Yeah, it's a good question. They do, but you know, some complainants get upset about how little they do of that and will tell you that they don't spend enough time talking to families and, and others who were involved in that. I can't necessarily vouch for that. But just in terms of a logistical thing, so if there's a a homicide inquiry, a, a fatal police shooting, and the IPCA will always do an independent investigation into that. They never chuck that back to the police. They'll always do their own investigation. They will sit in with the detective. So they're in the same place, you know. I mean, they might be behind one of those, you know, mirror walls that you see mm. on, the, on the movies. Um, but they are, they are in there. Um, and so they sit in on that. The detective is with the officer saying, you know, what happened? Where were you? Uh, what what did you do? Uh, what were the circumstances, etc.? The IPCA investigator is in there, and then they have the opportunity, if they want, to conduct their own separate interview. Now, uh, uh, you, you may well, as I have, get the opportunity to see that transcript of the police interview. You will never see what the IPCA said, ever. Wow. That, and that's secret. You'll never see it.
um, unless someone links it to you. And even if they do, you'd have some real problems because if you look at the IPCA Act, the, the secrecy provisions are very strong and um, you, you might well get in a lot of trouble trying to publish it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, their secrecy provisions are, uh, are very strong and they say, well, that's because um, it allows the police to be to be honest with us. But, you know, I, I, I as a journalist have some have some issues with that. I mean, I get it, but, um, you know, can we not have honesty and transparency? Mm. I mean, it, do we have to have a, a lack of transparency to get honesty as another way to frame it? So, yeah, I found that all very interesting and, and worthy of, uh, you know, more scrutiny and debate. Absolutely. And you actually make the point that because it's not subject to the OIA, it's it's more protected, I guess, more secretive than even the SIS. Well, that's right. So you have a bizarre situation, in my view, where the Security Intelligence Service, or the SIS as it's better known, the the spies, Mm. uh, are subject to the Official Information Act, and they're a clandestine spy agency for obvious reasons. Yet they're subject to the OIA. You don't have a lot of luck with them, but I have got documentation from them before, and, and, and they are subject to the OIA, and they will give you stuff on occasions, and you can appeal to the ombudsman and try your luck, but you don't even get through the front door with the, with the police watchdog. And I, you know, I, I personally think that, you know, there's an issue, real issue there. And I think you could get around it. In fact, I found that in, uh, there had been previous attempts to have them subject to the OAA uh, over the years, but it has never happened. Is it true that the IPCA will only investigate if it receives a complaint? Yes, it is. And they don't have what um, it's a bit of a bureaucratic term, but own motion inquiries. In other words, they can't go running off and, and look at something. They do do these things called thematic reviews where they go and look at a, a specific uh, wider issue like um, the challenges facing rural police officers or culture in the police or that sort of thing. But in general terms, yes, they have to respond to, to a, a complaint. They don't have the power to, to, to go and um, investigate things that they... Uh, come across themselves. They have to respond to to a complaint. And it's one of a number of of areas where the IPCA will admit themselves that their powers are pretty limited. And, you know, when I Googled this for IPCA news and I put in toothless, because that is often the word that is used to describe the IPCA, that it's a bit of a toothless tiger. I found it quite amusing when you asked Judge Doherty about this and he said, "Uh, it's gummy. (laughs) Yeah, it was quite a good response. He's um, and he's quite a character, obviously a very, a very smart man. But he himself says that the IPCA should have the powers of prosecution. It, he thinks that that it it that should change, and that they should be able to do that. I mean, when you think about it, right? So the IPCA makes its recommendation to the police, but the police can just ignore it. Now, if the police ignore it and the IPCA gets upset, what do they? What can they do? Well, in the legislation, they can write to the Minister of Police and the Attorney General, who can then table the recommendation in Parliament. Now, that's a wet bus ticket, isn't mm. it? But even that, they have never used those powers. So, you know, we, we came across examples where recommendations were ignored for years and years and years. And the best example I came across was drug and alcohol testing for officers involved in critical incidents. Now, I'm not for a second saying that the police have, you know, got drunk and shot someone. Mm. But, you you know, when there's a critical incident, you know, you want to be sure that, you know, what went on. Now, 
from the shooting of Stephen Wallace in 2000. In April 2000, Stephen Wallace used a golf club to smash the windows of a police car which officers were sitting in. He was fatally shot by one officer who has since been acquitted. When the IPCA investigated that, they said that there should be um, compulsory breath testing for officers involved in a critical incident. Now, it took until 2017 for that to come into force, and I saw several reports with the IPCA recommending that they should do this, and they just didn't. And that's something pretty fundamental, I would have thought. You know, if, if you're in any sort of serious crash or accident, plane or car or whatever, that's one of the first things you want to tick off and make sure it didn't happen. Mm. You know, I've seen many examples, actually, where the IPC have made recommendations where I can see and find no evidence that the police have actually gone ahead and done it. So it's useless, isn't it? Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I suppose in a way what they've got is the power of shame, it, you know, if you like. They, mm. if, if the IPCA report came out and said, you know, and heavily criticised the police, you and I and other journalists would run out and report it, and, and then there may be public pressure and you'd get, you may get change. But really, in terms of their powers, they are um, very limited in, in, in terms of what they can actually do. And Judge Doherty will, will admit that and say that they should have the power to actually prosecute, and, and they don't. Interesting that his predecessor, David Carruthers, I read a story just before he stepped down from that position in 2017, and he was against giving the IPCA more power. I mean, you know, we are talking about um, five years ago, so and a lot has changed, but he said that that could jeopardise the IPCA's good relationship with the police. <laughs> yeah, you see, this is really interesting, isn't it? And we, we get this dilemma all the time. You know, it's like that classic story of the journalist with the amazing contact book, but he can't ring anyone in the book because he might upset the relationship so he can't <laughs> use the sources. So you get into that real problem, don't you? Is it, what, what is it actually there for and, 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 and who can it actually serve? And, and then you also look at the fact that there have been 39 shootings since 1990 and no police officers have ever been charged with homicide and every single time the IPCA has said the shooting was justified. Now, it's possible that they all were and that none of those officers needed to be, uh, needed to be charged. But it does make you raise, raise your eyebrows about whether actually, you, you know, they are looking at these with enough scrutiny. And you also have to ask yourself, is it, is it a good situation to have the police investigating their own for, for homicide? It, it, can they be genuinely independent enough? And, and look, I've seen, in my opinion, many examples where they simply cannot be. And when I see their handbook for how they do it, I have big concerns as well. And we've, and, and we've reported on those. Um, so I know it sounds slightly off topic from the IPCA, which we focus on, on here, but, but I think that's the reason why you need a really robust, tough, aggressive IPCA with prosecutorial powers, because otherwise you're leaving it for the police to investigate their own. And that's, look, to be fair on the police, that's just really hard. I think mm. we'd find it hard too in our workplaces, wouldn't we? Yeah. If there was an issue, you know, there was a complaint, um, if we were investigating our own, you've got two big issues, haven't you? One, uh, are you going to be able to be independent? The second is the perception of it. Now, when you're talking about something as powerful and coercive as the police, and I don't mean that pejoratively, they, they are. <laughs> the power to, you know, to, to, 
take the life of a, of a citizen and, and, to, and to arrest and, um, you know, have massive impact on people's lives. And you really want to have a body that is going to be able to monitor them strongly. So you had the rare opportunity to do an interview, a, a lengthy interview with Judge Doherty. How open was he? Well, I thought he was pretty good, actually. Um, he, he fronted up. There was no question about that. Set the date and sat down under lights and cameras. We videoed it as well. And, you know, we spent over an hour, I think, with him. And he was pretty good. In fact, answered all my questions and full respect to him for, yeah. for that. Thing is, though, you know, you only know what you know, eh? I mean, there must be a lot of reports and a lot of communications and a lot of uh, documentation that we don't know about because they aren't subject to the OIA. But look, full, full credit to him, he, he, he did front up, and so did the police, actually. So with Judge Doherty's five-year term almost up, is it time for a big shake-up? You'd hope so, um, and you just wonder how much attention um, the government would would focus on with with a lot of other stuff going on, and mm. you know, and then you get into election years and stuff, and you can see how the stuff falls between the cracks. I, I looked back years and saw that in the dying days of the Clark government, in about oh seven and oh eight, they were trying to give the IPCA more power, make it subject to the OAA, give them uh, prosecutorial powers, powers similar to the police, um, some powers of arrest, uh, which is a big deal mm. compared to just being able to make a recommendation. But it didn't happen. It got lost in the cabinet paper that probably gathering dust some, somewhere yeah. in central Wellington. Look, I haven't, I, I haven't seen a, uh, a great deal of appetite from um, the Justice Minister, Chris Farfoy, to, to, to engage on, on this but you would think it would be time for a, for a good shake-up, wouldn't you? And you wonder whether part of this is a bit of a parting shot from, from the judge himself before he um, you know, hangs up his robes, robes Absolutely. And, and retires in Wanaka. Tell me, with all this work that you have done for your licence to kill in-depth piece, what surprised you most? What surprised me most is how inadequate the police homicide investigations are. You know, giving evidence to, to people who, before they are actually interviewed. I mean, I, just, I was just, just astonished at that. Mm. You know, I, I don't think you can deny that they go easy on their own. And, and they've had to change that. So, so they've, in terms of giving evidence to, to, to them, I mean, it's like giving your kids the answer to the homework the night before. I mean, allowing you to watch video evidence and then asking you about what you were doing. Well, you know, I mean, that... It, it, any detective would know that that's just not the way you conduct an investigation. I mean, that's laughable, frankly. And they, they've been called out and they've had to stop doing it. Um, and they've been doing it for a long time. And when you look at the way they conduct these investigations, you, you can't say that they're subject to the same rigour that civilians would be. And I found that the most interesting thing, actually, probably when, when I think about it. The IPCA says, look, a civilian trigger puller, in their words, should be treated the same as a, a police officer who's pulled the trigger in a homicide investigation. And the cops, the commissioner, um, Costa, says no, they shouldn't really be because the police are having a special case. Now, we can argue about whether they should be treated the same or not. People might have different views. But I think it's highly interesting that the regulator is saying, well, you should be treating them the same as civilians, and the police are saying, well, we shouldn't. <laughs> And effectively, they don't. So in terms of us all being equal under the law, I find that pretty interesting and, and worthy of scrutiny. 
That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism, funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom 4 RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Guyon Espiner. Kakite. Thank you.